Evening everyone. It's late Saturday night now, but it's lovely to picture you uh, tomorrow morning sprinkled all over Croydon by the Lord and further afield doing different things. Uh, some of you will be meeting with each other by video link, which is brilliant, good for you. Uh, maybe others will be out running as you listen to this or having breakfast or just relaxing at home. And I'm conscious that some of you might be in bed right now because you're not well. But wherever we are, spread across Croydon right now, and whatever each of us will be doing tomorrow morning, we are one in spirit. We're still family, even if how we meet has to involve a bit of extra innovation for a while. And God is still our loving, sovereign Father who has everything under control and good purposes behind everything. And Jesus is still our brother and our Lord and our Saviour and our friend, and the Spirit still indwells us and guides us and comforts us and empowers us. And so on we go. It's going to take a little more than some coronavirus to stop the church. And this week in John's Gospel, we're up to chapter 14. We're not going to go through the whole chapter exhaustively, every single verse. It's too long for that. But I will pick out some of the main points. And this passage is unbelievably relevant and appropriate for this current season that we're in of coronavirus. Uh, God putting this passage in front of us at this moment could not have been more perfect. And so I'm going to read chapter 14 now. And the context is that we're getting into what is known as the farewell discourse. Jesus' final big block of teaching to his disciples before he dies, rises and ascends back to heaven. And his teaching is largely about how they're going to carry on his mission once he's gone. Of gathering together his people from the whole world. And so like we said last time, this is a little bit like a military commander briefing his troops one last time before he heads off into the most dangerous and strategically important mission of his life, so that they'll know how to exploit his great and glorious victory once he's gone. And the question for us to be mulling in our minds as we hear chapter 14 is this. What different reasons can you spot Jesus giving for why his followers do not need to lose heart and let their hearts be troubled? There, there are lots in the passage, but what different reasons can you spot Jesus giving for why his followers do not need to let their hearts be troubled. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know, the way the where, you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. Lord, thank you for putting this chapter of your scriptures in front of Redeemer in, at this moment, in this season. Lord, we trust you that that is not an accident and we welcome the truths that we're about to study, Father, from your hand, from our loving Father's hand, as truths which will strengthen us and educate us, remind us, empower us, challenge us. Lord, please would the scriptures we're about to look at do all of these things and more in our hearts for our sakes and ultimately for the sake of your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder what is troubling your heart right now in the midst of this global pandemic. Um, I think many of us will be feeling a dull, throbbing anxiety, maybe over our own health, maybe over the health of loved ones who are elderly or have underlying health issues. I think of my parents. Or maybe it'll be anxiety over our finances as the economy is increasingly hit by coronavirus, which will affect us all. Or just anxiety over the unknown. Maybe this whole situation feels utterly surreal to you, as it does to me. Uh, many of us have seen disaster movies where something like this happens, is very disturbing to have the feeling that the plot of one has jumped out of the screen 
and invaded the real world and we don't know where this is going to end. Or maybe it's not so much anxiety you feel as outright fear. Uh, for others, it might be stress. You know, stress as we start to clash with family members more because of being confined to close quarters, trying to work from home when there's not enough room. Um, the internet slows down because everybody's trying to work from home using their home internet. And we start to bounce off the walls and get a touch of what my wife calls cabin fever. Or, or maybe the stress of shortages, be it food or hand wash or other supplies. Uh, for others, maybe your heart is troubled by loneliness as you find yourself self-isolating, unable to be with parents or friends, um, or in some cases in Redeemer already, your own children. Uh, for others, your heart might be troubled by patterns of sin, maybe old patterns of sin returning, and the guilt that accompanies that as we suddenly find ourselves at home all day, sitting on the internet, all alone. Uh, there was an article recently on CNN on how use of internet pornography has spiked in recent days. And there are all sorts of other ways, too, of getting into trouble if we're suddenly on our own on the Internet all day. And not least fanning our own anxiety and our own depression by becoming news junkies. You know, getting fixated. Uh, and you know, th those are just some of the ways to be left with troubled hearts in this current climate. Uh, and then some of you have told me of the, the deep frustration of, of longed-for holidays and flights being cancelled, and trips to visit family members being cancelled, and events that you've waited ages for that are really, really important being cancelled. And I'll stop there, but the list just goes on, doesn't it? You know, we're in troubled times. And so it's an amazingly apt opening verse that God planned to be in front of Redeemer this morning, isn't it? From John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. And this chapter contains literally life-changing reasons from Jesus as to why we don't need to let our hearts be troubled. And so we're going to see first why the disciples' hearts were troubled at this point, And then second, what Jesus says will bring them peace. And this chapter therefore makes available for us as well the most profound, situation-proof, heartwarming, life-changing, coronavirus-dwarfing peace. That's what God wants us to enjoy so that we can keep going for Jesus. Let's jump in. And so at this point in John's Gospel, why are the disciples' hearts troubled? And there's a few reasons, and the biggest and most obvious is that Jesus is about to leave them. John 13, 33. He says, Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And we mustn't underestimate the trauma that must have caused them. One commentator put it like this. Their whole world had been so wrapped up with Jesus over the last few years that the prospect of his departure must have been devastating. The image he uses for them is orphans, verse 18. Emotionally, they can only contemplate the loss of Jesus like a child's loss of its parents. And yet that wasn't all. Their, their hearts would also have been troubled by Jesus' prophecy that Peter would deny him, John thirteen thirty-eight, And by some indicators that once Jesus had gone... They had some great task ahead of them. Plus, in their minds, if their confident leader Peter was going to fail, what chance had the rest of them? So it's safe to say their hearts were troubled. Now, our hearts might be troubled for very different reasons, 2,000 years later, hundreds of miles away. But in essence, they were not in a massively dissimilar place to some of us emotionally. They were reeling. 
which brings us on to the second question, which takes up the rest of this chapter. What is going to bring them peace, and by extension us? And the first thing Jesus says to them is very, very simple and absolutely foundational. And it's the second half of verse 1. So if you have an open Bible, and I hope you do, have a look down, second half of verse 1 in John 14. Super simple. Believe in God. That's what Jesus says. By which Jesus means God the Father. Then he adds, believe also in me, because he too is God, as much God as God the Father. And his point is for the disciples to believe, to have faith. The disciples would have been thinking, if Jesus is this great Messiah, if he's divine and, and so wise and powerful and got everything sorted, what could he possibly be thinking in getting himself betrayed and then leaving us and leaving us with some massive task that we're not going to be up to? Now, similarly, some of us might be thinking right now, if God's meant to be all loving and all powerful, what could he possibly be thinking by allowing this pandemic? And Jesus' answer is for them to have faith, to trust him. And he then shows them the ground for having faith by showing them that his departure is not the unmitigated disaster they fear it to be, but is in fact good news for three reasons. First of all, his departure will secure their eternal destiny. If you're taking notes, that's the first out of our three points, that Jesus' departure will secure their eternal destiny. And we see this in verses 2 to 6. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. He's saying in heaven there are many places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And, and the picture there isn't what I thought it was for years. The picture here isn't that Jesus had to physically go to heaven to, to prepare a place for us by kind of plumping up the metaphorical cushions and putting fresh flowers on the nightstand and sprucing the place up. It wasn't that he had to make a journey there so he could then prepare a place for us. The truth is that it was his journey there itself, his journey there, that prepared the place for us. In other words, he's our pathfinder, our trailblazer. If he hadn't gone, the route wouldn't be open for us to follow. I remember once playing in a cornfield in a little, uh, as a little boy on a summer's day. And the corn was over my head and, and it was too thick for me to bash it down. But one of the other boys I was playing with was bigger. And he ran ahead of me, creating these paths down which I could run. That's what Jesus did for us by going to heaven first. But it's not as if he went there and then just kind of sits pretty, having abandoned us, waiting for us to catch up. Verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, come to us in spirit that is, and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying to Thomas, you don't know the way? You're looking at it. I recently read about a pastor taking a, a plane trip one stormy night from California to Philadelphia. It was very late, but when the guy next to him learned he was a Christian, he wanted to talk. I believe that going to heaven is a bit like going to Philadelphia, the man said. You can get there by train, 
by bus, by plane, by car. There are many ways to get there. And then this pastor then wrote, As we started descending into Philadelphia, the plane was fogged in, the wind was blowing, the rain was beating on the plane, and everyone looked nervous and tight. As we were circling in the fog, I turned to the theological expert on my right. I'm certainly glad the pilot doesn't agree with your theology, I said. What do you mean? he asked. The people in the control tower are giving instructions to the pilot. Coming north by northwest, three degrees, you're on beam, you're on beam, don't deviate from beam. I'm glad the pilot's not saying, oh, there are many ways into the airport, there are many approaches we can take. I'm glad he is saying there is only one way can, we can land this plane and I'm going to stay on it. According to Jesus, at least, no one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus' own journey there has opened up the route for us. So far from being disaster, Jesus' departure is precisely what will secure his followers' future eternal destiny of unimaginable happiness. Uh, I suppose it's a, a bit like a little baby. We have uh, lots of babies in our church family. One of the things about our family that I love, and we've got multiple more babies on the way, um, but it's like a little baby panicking as the parent leaves the room for a minute, for a few seconds, thinking the whole world is coming to an end, bawling and bawling and bawling. Not realising that the parent has to leave the room just for a few seconds in order to grab the baby's bottle of milk, which will give the baby unbelievable pleasure and health and life. Contrary to what it looks, might look like for the baby, the parent does know what they're doing. Well, Jesus does know what he's doing. We can trust him, we can have faith in him, no matter what, even if we don't understand it at the time, even in the midst of a global pandemic. But as well as securing their future destiny, Jesus' departure is necessary for completing his revelation of the Father. And that's our second point if you're taking notes. His departure secures their future destiny, but also second now, completes his revelation of the Father. And we see this in verses 7 to 11. Uh, verse 7. If you had known me, known me more deeply, that is, he's saying, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, because of what's about to happen now, my death and resurrection and ascension, my departure, now you'll really have an insight into what God the Father is really like. And we get this point at the very uh, end of the chapter as well. Look at verse 31 of John 14, where Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me. In other words, I die and rise and return to him. I depart from you so that the world may know that I love the Father. In other words, without Jesus' total submission and obedience to his Father, obedience even unto death, the world couldn't have fully known the extent of the love between the Father and the Son. Couldn't have known about their relationship as much as we can know about their relationship because Jesus died according to the Father's plan. Without his departure, Jesus could not have fully revealed the Father. Uh, reading on in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus' point being that he and the Father both share the same divine nature. They're both God, as much God as each other, even though Jesus also took on a human nature. 
It's a bit like if I were to say to an alien, look, if you've seen me, you've seen what it is to be human. In that sense, it's kind of like you've seen my son. He's human as well. It's kind of as, as if you've already seen him. He's human, apparently. Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen what it is to be divine. It's as if you've seen the Father. He's divine, just like I am. And here, let me quote one, one Christian writer who cashes this truth out for us very powerfully. Life at times does not appear to make discernible sense. That's what this writer puts. The vastness of the universe oppresses us. The seemingly impersonal cycle of nature evidence is no master plan. It's what it might feel like right now, mightn't it, with the virus. And the story of humanity rolls on generation after generation with little apparent meaning at the heart of it all. In our personal lives, unexpected happenings break in, unbidden, sometimes cruelly. And we find ourselves echoing the verdict of Macbeth. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying <laughs> nothing. And this writer goes on. In such moods, we cry out from our troubled hearts for some word from beyond to reassure us there is meaning, that a heart of love still beats behind the cold indifference and arbitrariness of things. That word is spoken to us in Jesus. In this man and his life of service, even unto death, God is made known, a God in whom we can fully trust and truly find peace. So Jesus' departure, his death, resurrection, return to the Father, completes his revelation to us of the Father. Even in the midst of apparent disaster, which is what his departure would have seemed like to the disciples, he knows what he's doing. We can trust him. And then there's a third and final reason why his departure is actually good news, why his disciples can trust him instead of letting their hearts be troubled. Because not only will his departure secure their future destiny, and complete his revelation to them of the Father, but thirdly, it'll also equip them to live for him. It'll equip them to live for him, and this is in verses 12 to 26. And we're not going to go through all of those verses, but this section is where Jesus majors on the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who will equip Jesus' people to live for him and be on mission for him. And unless Jesus departs, the Holy Spirit won't come to them, can't come to them. As Jesus puts it later in John's Gospel, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, referring to the Spirit, will not come to you. And so yet again, the situation looks terrible. Jesus' departure looks like a complete disaster, and yet he knows what he's doing. We can trust him. We don't need to let our hearts be troubled. Even if we don't always know what he's doing, he does. I'll always remember my first ever penknife. I was young, uh, I think probably maybe five or six, and uh, I think it was a gift from my grandfather, my father's father, who I never knew that well. I mean, it was red, I can still picture it very clearly to this day, and it had that little Swiss Army penknife logo on it. And it was a thing of beauty. And it had all of these different things, from a toothpick to tweezers to a corkscrew, I suppose for all the wine I was drinking. Um, but its pride and glory was th this big array of all sorts of different blades and saws and they were sharp they were very sharp and the reason i know they were sharp is that within about three minutes of being given 
being given it, I succeeded in slicing open my thumb. And my last memory of that penknife is my parents discussing in the next room whether or not I needed stitches. And I don't think I was entrusted with another penknife for a few years. Well, the gift of the Holy Spirit is like that knife. Magnificent, beautiful, frighteningly effective, not to be mishandled, and gloriously multifaceted in what he can do. He's the gift that keeps on giving in so many, many different ways. And Jesus here highlights six things that will happen among his people because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're just going to touch on each one. So first, his people will be empowered for service. And we see that in verses 12 to 14. And by the way, in verse 14, when Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's not a blank check to cover my personal wish list. The crucial phrase is, if you ask me anything in my name. And what that means is, if you ask me anything in line with my character, if you ask me anything that will result in my glory, if you ask me anything in line with my identity and my mission, that's what in my name means. So if you ask for courage to witness, or integrity to be distinctive in the world, or, or wisdom for how to reach out to someone who's hard to reach, or, or more compassion for the lost so that you will be a witness to them, or, or strength to cope with persecution, get ready for big answers to your prayers. If, on the other hand, you're asking for a Lamborghini, maybe don't hold your breath. And as well as empowering them for service, second, the Holy Spirit unites them to the risen Jesus with special intimacy, verses 17 to 21. And third, he unites them to the Father, who along with Jesus will make his home with them, verse 23. And fourth, he enables them to prove their love for Jesus by obeying Jesus, 21 to 24. And fifth, he teaches them, 26. And especially relevantly here, sixth, he gives them peace, verse 26, uh, 27. And not all of these, these six things are explicitly linked, in this passage at least, to Jesus' gift to his people of his spirit, of the, the Holy Spirit. But given the context, I think it's fair to see it that way. Uh, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. In other words, Jesus doesn't just give surface level peace or short-lived peace or peace at a price. He gives them real peace. Not the world's peace, which isn't worth much, but he, as he puts it, my peace I give to you. And the Hebrew word for peace there, this is in Greek, um, but it's uh, the, the, the exact same word as the word in Greek in Hebrew, um, is shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean the absence of conflict like the word peace does in English. Shalom also carries a very heavy sense of positive, active blessing, having a good personal relationship with God and therefore of everything being well in your life. That doesn't mean you won't have persecution. Jesus' uh, 12 disciples absolutely had lots of that. Doesn't mean you won't catch coronavirus. Many of us will. But it does mean that no matter what happens, no matter what your circumstances, your heart does not need to be troubled. You don't need to be afraid. That is how verse 27 ends. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And the point is that those of us who are trusting in Jesus have that same spirit. Those six massive life-changing things are available to us through that spirit. They're ours. 
And so coronavirus and all of its awful knock-ons, you know, job losses and loneliness and anxiety and stress and fear and bereavement, none of that can drain our power to serve the Lord Jesus. None of that can cut our relationship with him off, cut us off from the Father's presence, stop us from loving and obeying Jesus, stop us from learning spiritual truths, stop us from having deep-seated peace no matter what. Because we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and gives us those things, And Jesus then finishes this section with one last reason in verse 28 as to why they shouldn't be troubled by his departure. And it's that because of it, he will then be able to make his father's power available to them in a more intimate way. And by the way, when verse 28 says the father is greater than I, doesn't mean greater than Jesus in nature. They're both equally divine, fully God as much God as each other. It means the father's greater in leadership, uh, in authority which is why the Son being reunited with him can then result in the Father's power being more intimately mediated for us, his people. And ever since the ascension of Jesus back to heaven, the Father's relationship with Jesus' people has had a deeper dimension that we get to experience to this day. So let me finish with this. Um, Nicholas Ridley, one of our older brothers, an amazing, amazing man, one of my heroes. I cannot wait to meet him in heaven. On the 16th of October, 1555, he was burned at stake, burned at the stake in Oxford because of his faith in Jesus, because he he refused to stop being on mission. And on the night before his execution, his brother offered to stay with him in his prison cell just to comfort him and be available for him if he wanted anything. But Ridley famously declined the offer, saying that he meant, quote, to go to bed and sleep as quietly as ever he did in all his life. Even despite knowing what was about to come to him, his heart wasn't troubled because he knew these things. He knew his future destiny was secured. He was clear on exactly who his Heavenly Father was and what he was like. He had that revelation. He was spectacularly spectacularly equipped by the Spirit to live for Jesus. And so he had this stunning, unshakable, arguably miraculous peace. His heart wasn't troubled. And if that was the case for him, the night before an unthinkable death, that can definitely be the case for us, coronavirus or not. So let me now just give a a bit of silence for contemplation and, and personal prayer right now. And then I'll close in prayer. And straight after that, we'll hear from our worship pastor, James, who will tee us up for a response to God. Let's have some quiet. Loving Father, thank you so much that being fully God, fully divine, your son, the Lord Jesus, knew exactly what he was doing, even when it made no sense to the disciples. Thank you that their hearts did not need to be troubled by his departure, that they did not need to be afraid. And thank you that 
we have to this day his teaching for his disciples, which by extension applies to us. Lord, and, and so we know that the reason they didn't have to have their hearts troubled or be afraid was that his departure would, number one, secure their future eternal destiny of stunning happiness. And that his departure would complete his revelation to them and to us of you, Lord, of the Father. And that his departure would mean they could be spectacularly equipped to live for him, to be on mission for him, because his departure meant the coming to them of the Holy Spirit. Father, please give us the peace of, of guys like Nicholas Ridley and so many other brothers and sisters throughout church history who have faced even worse things than this pandemic in their personal lives or even in their whole societies and their cultures in terms of persecution. Father, this is relatively new for us to have this level of discomfort in our, our Western 21st century luxury. But Lord, nothing is new to you. you. You see everything coming. You have purposes behind everything. You know what you're doing. Help us to trust you and have faith in you, as Jesus says to his disciples in verse 1. And help us therefore not to let our hearts be troubled and not to be afraid. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've just heard from Will of how we should trust in Jesus. Uh, let's now sing or, or listen to um, the song, The Lord's My Shepherd, which just reminds us um, that our trust is in the Lord.